Open your Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. We don't always go this slow. And sometimes we do it. After all, it is Wednesday night. If you are saved, it's because you were chosen by God before the foundations of the earth. The sovereign God of creation foreknew you. He predestined you. All Christians believe what I just said. You have to believe it because it's what the Bible unequivocally teaches. Now, having said that, it must be admitted that there's wide disagreement on exactly how you were chosen and what God foreknew and when you were predestined. Welcome to the doctrine of election. After, uh, over the past 10 or so years, these issues have been the hot button among Christians. Even today, there's a popular movement affectionately called the Young, Restless, and Reformed that keep this topic burning. I'd wager to say that many of you have been in discussions with uh, those who are in that movement or who have leanings towards Reformed uh, theology. Uh, I'd wager to say that there's a few of you who are Reformed. Uh, let me say that I don't anymore see arguing over election as the most valuable use of our energies as believers. It seems to me a far more important issue for edifying believers and evangelizing non-believers to deal with what we like to call the problem of pain in our world. Your coworker or neighbor or your relative who just learned that someone close to them or they themselves has terminal cancer, they're not going to be ministered to by a discussion of God's foreknowledge and predestination. They need to understand that God can be both omnipotent and love and yet permits suffering on account of his own long-suffering with sinners, not willing that any one of them should perish, but that every one of them should come to eternal life. Nevertheless, we've come in our reading of 1 Thessalonians to the doctrine of election, and it is our blessed duty and privilege to discuss it. So verse 4, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Uh, what is election by God? Well, there are at least six ways that the concept of God's election is used in the Bible, and you have to understand the context every time you find it. Uh, first of all, there's a verse in 1 Timothy that refers to certain elect angels. It's 1 Timothy 5.21. There the word is used to refer to the angels who did not rebel against God with Satan. They form a group, a corporate group, that includes them but excludes all others, and God thus calls them the elect angels. Election can simply refer, secondly, to God raising you up to serve him. When Samuel came to anoint the next king of Israel, God chose or he elected David to serve him as king. Third, Jesus Christ is specifically referred to as God's elect. That's one of his titles and one of his names. You see that in Isaiah 42, verse 1 and elsewhere. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel as a whole is regarded as God's elect or chosen nation, Isaiah 45, verse 4. Likewise, in the New Testament, the church as a whole is regarded as God's elect. We see that in tonight's verse. And then the word elect can be synonymous with an individual being saved. I'm a Christian. I'm born again. I am elect. We might therefore give this working definition of election. By the way, it's hard to define election without throwing in some theology. Best I can do is this. Election is God's choosing of individuals or groups to be the objects of his grace 
or to otherwise fulfill his purposes. Often, but not always, God's election is associated with his choice of individuals or groups unto salvation. Now, as I said, there is widespread disagreement as to exactly how a person is elected by God. Theologian and author John Stott frankly says, no explanation is given except God's love. And I, over the years, I I tend to believe uh, that Stott's position is pretty accurate. Uh, Everyone will tell you that they've got this all figured out. Uh, I'll, I'll go over the three Uh, you know, themes tonight. You'll see where I kind of land, obviously. But John Stott said, in the final analysis, this is not going to be understood except that God loved the human race and he acted to save them. Nevertheless, we do struggle to understand certain aspects of God's election. uh, And um, that's what we're going to do tonight. Now, if you survey the theological landscape, you'll find as I mentioned, three prominent recurring themes about election. They're sometimes categorized as unconditional election, conditional election, and corporate election. They're not necessarily mutually exclusive, but there are vast differences between them. Unconditional election teaches that in eternity past, God chose certain individuals from the mass of fallen humanity to save without regard to foreseen faith in them, but solely based on his sovereign discretion. God looked at the human race, and uh, for reasons that we would never comprehend, he chose certain individuals uh, without any regard to any decision of theirs or any faith that they might exercise. He simply chose them. This view is associated with Reformed theology and Calvinism, which, by the way, is not the same thing. You may not know it, but there are many and varied expressions of both Reformed theology and Calvinism. Not all Reformed groups agree. You can, for example, be Reformed but not be a Calvinist. And not all Calvinists believe the same thing. It's even become sort of popular to say that John Calvin was not really a Calvinist. Uh, and, and so when you hear these terms, well, I'm a, I believe in the Reformed doctrine of predestination or I'm a Calvinist, generally speaking, you can uh, be certain that they believe in unconditional election of some kind, but they're all over the map theologically in disagreement with each other. It is not one tight system uh, that everybody will agree to. There's certain guys today like John Piper and um, R.C. Sproul, not so much. He's not as popular as he once was. Uh, but these guys, you listen to them and you think, that's, that's it. That's Calvinism. That's Reformed theology. But uh, they are just one very small understanding and branch of that. Now, one of the major and I feel insurmountable conclusions of unconditional election is that if God chose some to salvation without regard to their foreseen faith, then he also chose others, perhaps the majority of the human race, to damnation. He could have saved more. He could have saved all, since it was solely his prerogative to do so. But for reasons that remain mysterious, God thought it would bring him more glory to save a few while consigning the rest to suffer in hell having had no choice in the matter. Baptist theologians offer this analogy, and I think it hits home. Imagine, if you will, a fireman who goes into a burning orphanage 
to save some young children because they're unable to escape by themselves and can be saved only if he rescues them. Only he can save them because he has the proper equipment to get through the smoke and endure the flames. He comes back in a few minutes bringing out three of the 30 children. But rather than going back in to save more children, the fireman goes over to the news media and talks about how praiseworthy he is for saving three children. Indeed, saving the three children was a good heroic deed, but the pressing question on everyone's mind is, what about the other 27 children? Since he has the means to rescue the children, and indeed he is the only one who can save the children since they cannot save themselves, would we view the fireman's actions as morally praiseworthy? We would not. In fact, probably he would be charged with depraved indifference. He had the means to help them, but he would not. If we do not find that praiseworthy in a human being, how on earth would we find it praiseworthy in God? How does it bring glory to God when he could have gone into the burning orphanage and saved more, but he said, I'm not going to because I want you to see how glorious I am? It, it doesn't make any sense. This dual choosing on God's part is referred to as double predestination. This is language that Calvinists and Reformed scholars use. If in eternity past God predestined some to salvation, then he also predestined others to damnation. Unconditional election, by the way, also teaches that regeneration precedes faith. In other words, God saves you, he regenerates you, you are born again, and only afterward can you exercise faith to believe in him. His grace is said to be irresistible to those he has elected from eternity past and regenerated. So let's move on. Conditional election is so-called because it is conditioned upon God's foreknowledge of faith in individuals, which is made possible because of His grace. That is, God's grace frees man's will to make the choice to believe, but you can resist this grace and remain lost. Those that God foresees will believe, enabled by His grace, are the ones whom He chooses from the beginning for salvation." This view is identified with Arminianism. Not Armenian, as in the people from Armenia, but Arminian after Jacob Arminius, the Dutch theologian who debated Reformed theology in the late 1500s. A criticism of this view is that it makes man responsible for his own salvation, that it puts too much of the choosing on man. The critics say man saves himself in this scope. That's not at all fair to those who hold this view. They too, along with Reformed and Calvinist theologians, see mankind as totally depraved and hopelessly lost, but instead of irresistible grace acting upon your heart to save you before you exercise faith, what they call prevenient grace frees your will to accept or reject Jesus Christ. Another criticism is that any election other than unconditional election undermines God's sovereignty. If you are freed, even by grace, to choose, then they say God is no longer sovereign because he has given you a choice. The answer to that is to realize, and I like this phrase, God is sovereign over his sovereignty. Think about that. If, in fact, he has decided in his sovereignty as God to free your will to choose, how would that undermine anything? If that's the way God has determined to save individuals, 
If that's what the Bible teaches, you can't say that God is not sovereign. God is sovereign over his sovereignty. We joke sometimes about a man doing something that might not be considered so manly. I don't want to give any examples because I'd bust some of you guys. We say of a person that he is comfortable with his manhood or if guys are joking with each other and they say, oh, I saw you the other day, you know, working out in the garden or whatever it might be or, you know, baking cookies and stuff, you know, and you'd say, well, I'm, I'm comfortable in my manhood. I can do those kinds of things. God, if indeed he has chosen to allow prevenient grace to free the human will, is obviously comfortable with his sovereignty and, and doesn't have a problem doing so. Arminian theologian Roger Olson says, Saying we have free will to resist and even thwart the will of God would not diminish the greatness of God's sovereignty and power because our ability to resist and thwart God's perfect will is given by us, uh, is given us by God for the sake of having real relationship with us, not an artificial one. Yes, of course, God could control us, but he doesn't. Not because we have some power over him, but because he wants to, us to love him and obey him freely and not by compulsion. You know, anybody among us, as we're thinking about these heady theological things and trying to determine, you know, what we believe, I would say the vast majority of us at any given time believe that we can do something less than God's perfect will. Wouldn't you say that's true? Haven't you? Would you uh, look at it this way? Can you honestly say you always do God's perfect will? If the answer to that is no then God in his sovereignty has allowed you to make choices that are less than his perfect will. That's all this is saying is something that we all believe anyway, that we don't always do exactly what God wants us to do. Does God want you to sin? No, God hates sin. Jesus died for your sin. So when you sin, did God make you sin? Did he plan for you to sin? Did he determine that you would sin? No, that's outside of the will of God. And yet God remains sovereign over his universe and over your life. And so God is sovereign over his sovereignty. God is love. And in his love, he can limit his sovereignty to allow your will to be freed by his grace so that you might choose to love him. A lot of times people say they want to argue between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. But the real argument is about the character and the nature of God. Is God love? And the answer to that, of course, is yes. And since he's love, then he gives his children a free choice so that they can love him. Love cannot be forced. It must be freely chosen or it ceases to be love. We know that on a human level. Uh, it can only be something greater with God. Now, perhaps we should never talk about free will, but in a freed will, one which, though initially bound by sin, has been brought by the prevenient grace of the Spirit of God to a point where it can respond freely to the divine call. <clears throat> I haven't forgotten that there's a third view of election. It's called corporate election. It accurately points out that Jesus Christ is called God's elect. And that through Christ's redemptive work, God has purposed to form a people to be his body who become part of him, the elect. So Jesus is the elect, and when you receive Christ, you are part of the elect. This election is freely offered to all mankind. Anyone who believes and is identified with Jesus Christ by grace through faith becomes part of the elect and is assured of salvation. 
Supporters argue that the New Testament language that explicitly discusses election to salvation is always corporate. Our text here in 1 Thessalonians, for example, is addressing the church as a corporate group. Paul's talking to all of the beloved brethren, plural, rather than any one individual. Further, Paul says something quite fascinating here. He says, I know you are elect. Can he really know after only three weeks of being with them briefly and just a few months after he had established the church receiving a report that every last one of them is truly saved? Is he really saying, I know everyone listening to this letter being read is personally saved? He, he can't know that. It seems more likely he was addressing the church corporately, those who are the beloved brethren who are in the elect Jesus Christ, who are genuinely saved, is who he's talking to. He's talking to the church corporately. Corporate election is sometimes illustrated by comparing the church to a ship on its way to its future and final destination. The ship is chosen by God to be his very own vessel. Jesus Christ is the chosen captain and pilot of this chosen ship. God desires that everyone would come aboard this ship and has graciously made provision for them to do so through its captain. Only those who place their trust in the captain of the ship are welcome to come on board. Election is experienced only in union with the captain and his ship. Predestination tells us about the ship's future direction and final destination that God has prepared for those on it. God, out of his immense love, invites everyone to come aboard the ship through faith in the ship's captain, Jesus Christ. That's why we like to quote the scripture that says he is the savior of all men, especially those who believe. It, it, salvation is not universal, but it is a universal solution to the universal problem of sin, and those who by grace through faith accept Christ are saved. Now, those in the corporate election camp also speak of prevenient grace. What is that? Well, it's not a different type or a kind of grace. Uh, people, you know, it's not something where you could say, well, I don't see this in the Bible. I don't see the term prevenient. No, of course you don't. But you see grace acting this way. The word prevenient means that which, that which precedes or which comes before. That's all the word means. It's, a, it's an archaic word that's not used very much anymore. When used of grace, it means the grace of God that precedes salvation. Prevenient grace is simply the convicting, calling, enlightening, and enabling grace of God that goes before conversion and makes repentance and faith possible. Calvinists interpret it as irresistible and effectual to the elect. The person in whom it works must repent and believe unto salvation. Arminians interpret it as resistible, and they point out that people are always able to resist the grace of God because that's what the Scripture says. Acts 7.51, for example, the Jews are told what? You do always what? Resist the grace of God. Jacob Arminius stressed that, and I quote, the grace of God is not a certain irresistible force. It is a person, the Holy Spirit. And in personal relationships, there cannot be the sheer overpowering of one person by another. The Holy Spirit doesn't come and overpower you. He doesn't abduct you. It's not a cage fight where he has all the, you know, all the moves. It's a wooing you. It's a loving you. One of my very favorite theologians, Henry Thiessen, described prevenient grace like this, and I quote, 
Because man is without any ability or desire to change, God responded by prevenient grace. This grace restores to the sinner the ability to make a favorable response to God. This fact is implied in God's dealings with Adam and Eve after the fall and in the many exhortations to sinners to turn to God, to repent and to believe. Because of prevenient grace, man is able to make an initial response to God, and God will then give to him repentance and faith. God, in his foreknowledge, knows what men will do in response to his prevenient grace, whether or not they will receive the grace of God in vain. Thus, foreknowledge is not causative. God foreknew what men would do in response to his prevenient grace, and he elected those whom he foresaw would respond positively. In this way, election follows foreknowledge. Now, if God, by prevenient grace, frees your will to respond, does that mean you work for your salvation or that you somehow earn it, making it not grace through faith? Think of this analogy. If someone gives you a check for $100,000, well, first of all, that would have been meant for Calvary Chapel, but if they do, <laughs> if someone gives you a check for $100,000 that saves you from bankruptcy and all you have to do is endorse the check and deposit it, did you earn any part of the money? Was it any less a gift to you? Well, you would say absolutely not. What if someone who received such a check that saved him or her from bankruptcy then boasted that they earned part of it? People would think you mad or ungrateful or both. A gift that must be freely received is no less a gift. Honest pastors and theologians will say that a strong biblical case can be made for all three views of election. Again, John Stott insightfully wrote, to whatever denomination or tradition we may belong, the doctrine of election causes us difficulties and questions. To be sure, it is a truth which runs through Scripture. Moreover, the topic of election is nearly always introduced for a practical purpose in order to foster assurance, not presumption, holiness, not moral apathy, humility, not pride, and witness, not lazy selfishness. And then he quotes what I said earlier, but still, no explanation, and he means of the how of election, is given except God's love. God is love, and since love is an essential attribute of God, it prompted Dave Hunt, who's now home with the Lord, in examining these issues to ask this question, what love is this that could have saved billions, but instead either did nothing to save them or acted to damn them to an eternity of suffering in hell. To be honest, and, and, and I want to be honest and fair to every viewpoint, some will say, I don't believe in double predestination. I don't believe God predestined certain people to hell. The Bible doesn't teach that. In fact, R.C. Sproul, who's a Reformed theologian, he says the Bible doesn't teach that. He says, but you have to believe that. If uh, God predestines some to salvation. He has to predestine others to damnation. But let's say he doesn't. He still just leaves them alone. That's the, that's the other answer. God predestined you for salvation, but the unsaved person who wasn't chosen before the foundation of the world, who has no hope of salvation, God just decided to leave that person alone. Either way, he has consigned billions of people to hell. 
I guess what I'm saying is that since this debate can never finally be settled, you may not believe that, but this debate can never finally be settled. Not this side of heaven. And since you can choose between viable biblical options, why choose one that makes God a monster? Especially when the average non-believer already thinks he is a monster for allowing their pain and suffering. Let's pray.